0: I'm Dr. Regina Kep. I'm a board certified clinical psychologist and I specialize with older adults and families. I created the Psychology of Aging podcast to dispel myths about aging, destigmatize mental health for older adults, and improve access to mental health care. Whether you're an older adult, a family member caring for an older adult, or a professional working with older adults, you're in the right place. And one more thing if you're a licensed mental health provider, like a social worker, psychologist, counselor, therapist, or an aging life care expert or certified care manager looking for continuing education focused on mental health and aging, simply go to mentalhealthandaging.com to learn more about how to earn your CEUs. All right, let's jump into today's episode. In today's episode, I interview Mark Brennan Ng, who... Is on the podcast today to talk about living and aging well with HIV. Here's why this topic is so important. More than half of the adults living in the US with HIV are over 50 years old. And this is because with the use of antiretroviral medications, many people who were diagnosed with HIV decades ago have been able to live well into their older adulthood. And this is great news. But in addition to this, older adults remain sexually active well into their older adulthood. Well, let me share an important statistic with you. People are continuing to be newly diagnosed every day with HIV. And of the people who are diagnosed every day with HIV, one out of six of them are over the age of 50. And so it's important that we talk about HIV and aging. And here are some reasons why it's so important. And the reasons why actually come from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So although older adults visit their doctors more often, they're actually less likely to talk with their providers about sexuality and substance use. So healthcare providers might not be asking folks 50 and older about these issues or test them for HIV. Also, older adults might not consider themselves to be at risk for HIV or might be embarrassed to talk about sex or mistake HIV symptoms for other medical problems that are arising for them with aging. Another reason is that Older people might not have as much information about HIV prevention and sexual risk, like having multiple sex partners increasing their risk, or they actually might be less likely to use a condom or other prevention options like PrEP, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is a medication that people at risk for HIV can take to prevent actually getting HIV. Another reason that talking about HIV and aging is so important is that older adults in the United States are more likely than younger people to have late stage HIV infection at the time that they're diagnosed. And this is a big deal because if you're 50 and older and you're starting treatment for HIV later, this actually puts you at a greater risk of immune system damage. And so it can, it can affect your aging process and your health. And so, Let me give you a statistic. Among people 55 and older who received an HIV diagnosis in 2015, that's just five years ago, half of them, 50% had HIV for four and a half years before they were actually diagnosed. The CDC tells us this is the longest delay for any age group. And so older adults might be putting off testing or putting off talking with their doctors about it for longer than other age groups. And that's a problem because like I said a minute ago, the earlier treatment can get started, the better, right? Okay. And finally, stigma. So stigma is a common issue among older adults with HIV. And stigma, as you know, or can imagine, negatively affects a person's quality of life or how they think about themselves and self-esteem and our self-image. And then that in turn affects how we behave or act. So we might isolate ourselves and then that could increase our risk for depression. So people 50 and older might avoid getting the care they need or avoid telling people about their HIV status Because they might already face isolation due to having other illnesses, or maybe they've lost friends and family already, or worry that they'll be ostracized from their community support. Of course, stigma is a really big deal. I want to share with you, I did my postdoctoral fellowship at Emory University in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at a hospital connected to that um, to Emory was Grady. Grady had a really great, um, and and still has a really great HIV clinic and, and, um, provides like wraparound services for folks living with HIV. When I was there, I started a newly diagnosed group and some of the people who actually participated in my group had been diagnosed actually for 10 or 15 years but they hadn't shared their diagnosis with anyone. And part of what we were doing in my group is to talk about as a group, when and how to talk about your HIV status, also how to identify if it's safe to do that and who you'd want to do that with, and then how to actually get the words and the courage to do it. And so the reason I share this story with you is that when people put off talking about an illness for 10 or 15 years, that says to me, there is a lot of stigma that is getting in their way of living a full life or having full relationships or a sense of security in their relationships. And we can do something about that. That's one of the reasons I'm, I'm sharing this episode today, because with this podcast, this psychology of aging podcast, my goal is to destigmatize mental health for older adults and to promote access to care for older adults and to create a space that is inclusive of all older adults. Today and I'm so glad that you're here and wanting to learn about HIV and aging. All right, so let's deepen the conversation and talk about mental health, HIV and aging. And stigma plays a big role in this as well. Of course, we just talked about stigma related to HIV, and there's also stigma related to mental health concerns. So let me share a little bit about some mental health statistics as it relates to HIV in older adults. So a 2009 study found that HIV-positive older adults were five times more likely to experience depression than Older adults who are not HIV positive. Another study found that 27% of HIV infected older adults had thought about suicide in the previous week. Other researchers found that when older adults who have HIV have elevated symptoms of depression, this is a big deal because it affects their quality of life, it affects their daily functioning, it increases frailty. And also it leads to higher dropout rates in care. And this is really important because in the 1990s, antiretrovirals played a significant role in helping people to live a long and relatively healthy life with HIV. If older adults are depressed and also living with HIV, and they're more likely to drop out of care, they're not going to be getting the medical or the mental health care that they need. And we know that depression is highly treatable in older adults. And we also know that when depression goes untreated in older adults, it causes an increase in medical problems. It causes older adults to need to use more medication for medical problems. It increases the rates of visits to emergency rooms for medical problems and so many other things. So another important component to this is, Is that HIV positive adults over the age of 50 are more socially isolated than their younger counterparts? And so today, Dr. Mark Brennan Ng is on the podcast giving us expert insight and information about supporting older adults living with HIV and tips for helping folks live and age well with HIV. Dr. Mark Brennan-Ing is Director of Research and Evaluation at the Brookdale Center for Healthy Aging at Hunter College, the City University of New York. Dr. Brennan-Ing's research focuses on psychosocial issues affecting persons living with HIV in older sexual minority and gender diverse adults. They are past president of the State Society on Aging of New York a fellow of the Gerontological Society of America, a fellow of Division 44, which is psychology of sexual orientation and gender diversity of the American Psychological Association, and past board member of the New York Association on HIV Over 50. Mark Brennan, Inc., thank you so much for uh, joining me today on the Psychology of Aging podcast. I'm delighted that you're here and to share all of your decades of uh, knowledge and research with us but will you share a little bit about who you are and what you do?
1: Sure. I'm a gerontologist. I've been um, working in HIV and aging since 2007. Before that, I studied how middle-aged and older adults cope and adapt to visual impairment, and I did that work for about 11 years. Um, so, So mostly my career has focused on I would say broadly how people cope and adapt to chronic health conditions in middle and late adulthood uh, within that framework. I've looked at a variety of issues from mental health to sexual health, to uh, social relationships and social supports, and also re- things like resilience um, specifically how religion and spirituality can be beneficial in terms of helping people cope with chronic illness
0: Can you share a little bit about HIV and aging in the US? Calling all mental health providers. Have you been feeling ineffective, stuck, or unsure of how to best help your client with memory loss? Well, it's not your fault. Most therapists haven't had any training in addressing memory loss or cognitive changes in therapy, but I got something for you in my free 10 minute video where I walk you through five steps for helping your clients presenting with memory loss. You'll learn the difference between memory loss and mental health concerns for older adults and how to help get this free training and a bonus workbook that you can start using in your clinic today. Simply go to www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity to learn more. That's www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y.
1: Sure, it's, it's really an emerging phenomenon. So when I, I started working in HIV in 2007, and when I was offered this position to do research on older adults with HIV, I was like, is this you know, really a thing? Um, but then I, I started to get into the data and see where the epidemiological trends were going. And um, pretty close to predictions, uh, right now, half the people in the US with HIV are over the age of 50. In certain areas, that proportion is even greater, like San Francisco and New York. In addition to that, nearly one in five new infections are among, are among people over the age of 50. And there's been some estimates that adults over the age of 45 are responsible for half of the HIV infections overall. So there's this idea that HIV is a young person's disease, and there's A lot of that is driven by ageism in our culture and ageism in the HIV field in general. But in most upper middle income countries or countries like Brazil, where the antiretroviral therapies have been widely available, we're seeing this aging of the population. And even if you go to low and middle income countries like those in Sub-Saharan Africa, there's a growing proportion of older adults with HIV. Right now, if you look in Sub-Saharan Africa, it's a little over 10% of the population, but that translates into over 3 million people, which is about three times the size of the entire epidemic in the United States. So this is a worldwide issue. As antiretrovirals become more affordable and more available, this is just going to continue for the foreseeable future. And so really what we're seeing, short of a cure for HIV, I think the next challenge for those of us working in the epidemic is, how do you provide care and support for an aging population who's dealing with HIV in addition to all the other challenges we face when we grow older?
0: Now, you mentioned um, this myth that we have that HIV is a young person's illness. When of the statistics you shared, we know that it's not and also you talked about antiretroviral medications and and i know that when we were preparing for this interview you've shared a lot with me about what it was like to be diagnosed with hiv in the 80s and 90s versus now and then the experience of having access to antiretrovirals early on or when they became available in the 90s and 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 sort of having two two different experiences of living with HIV. There's the experience of living with it for decades and then being newly diagnosed. And you kind of touched on those. Can you talk a little bit about that experience?
1: Sure. So, you know, one of the reasons we're seeing this growth in the older adult population is because of the antiretroviral therapy. Now we have a lot of long-term survivors, which we didn't see early on in the epidemic. So You know, in the 80s, once they figured out what this disease was, if you got an HIV positive diagnosis, you had a life expectancy of about two years on average. There were just no treatments. There were a lot of experimental treatments going on, nutritional therapies. Uh, a, A good snapshot into that world, although it is fiction, is a story called the Dallas Buyers Club. And really the links that people with HIV were going to because there was really nothing else out there. They were looking for any kind of a, a lifeline. Um, I, I can tell you personally, I, I tested in 1986. Unfortunately, that test came back negative. But that was about the worst two year weeks of my life because you were just waiting and waiting and waiting. And if you got a positive test result, there was nothing you could do. There was no treatment you could go into. It was really... You have this amount of time to get your affairs in order. So for people who were diagnosed before the antiretroviral therapies came available in the the mid-1990s, it was really a, really a bleak situation. No one expected to live two years, much less live into, you know, middle age and, and older adulthood. And the antiretroviral therapy really became a game changer for people. Um, in some cases, this was described as the Lazarus effect, that literally people who were on death's door, once they started getting the therapy came back. I mean, I had friends who were in that situation. Who I didn't think we're going to live longer than, you know, a couple of years who are still alive today. Not that they don't have some challenges uh, because of the HIV. So. So, we have this whole group of long term survivors, you know, a lot of people who are diagnosed in their 80s, primarily gay and bisexual men, and a lot of uh, gay and bisexual men of color. But then, as HIV kind of leaked out of the gay community, increasing numbers of heterosexuals were infected at that time, too. Um, So, you know, for, for long term survivors, there's a much as research shows this very different attitude towards that antiretroviral therapy is this being a real lifesaver for them. For people who've been di- diagnosed after that was developed, it's kind of a different relationship in that the having to take this medication every day in, in its current form is really a daily reminder of, of HIV disease. And there's still a lot of stigma around HIV, even though we it's curable now are not curable, it's treatable now, Um we're, we're still short of a cure, but people who are adherent to their antiretroviral medications, <coughs> excuse me, are able to suppress their viral load to a level where it's undetectable. And in those cases, not only is this good for their health, but their chance of passing the virus on through sexual activity is virtually non-existent. So this finding this idea that undetectable equals untransmittable has been another game changer for the HIV community because that's one of the big stigmatizing factors of HIV is that it is an infectious disease and other people can catch it. And there's still a lot of myths around how HIV is transmitted, Um, especially when you get into More traditional communities and communities that um, don't have the same kind of access to education. Uh, So there's still this idea that HIV can be transmitted through casual contact when it can't. It's not. I think you know one of the challenges with the coronavirus is you just have to be standing with somebody and you can get it. That's not HIV. HIV requires some kind of intimate contact, some kind of sharing of body fluids, or some kind of contaminated instrument like a, a an injection needle. Uh, so, so that's that's made a huge difference in in people's lives and. This idea is also really important for older people with HIV because the main tool for preventing the spread of HIV through sex had been using condoms or other kinds of um, adjustments to your sexual behavior so that you didn't risk uh, passing the virus on. One trouble a lot of older men have is using condoms because a lot of older men have erectile dysfunction. A lot of people have trouble using condoms just in general, the erectile dysfunction exacerbates that. So this is another way along with um, pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is something an HIV negative person can take uh, to avoid becoming HIV infected. uh, There are a lot of options now for people to have safer sex that don't always involve condoms. And, And this is a good thing for older men and their partners.
0: Yes. Now, you just mentioned PrEP. Can yes. you speak a little bit more about PrEP to tell us what it is and sure. are there side effects? How does it work?
1: Okay. So, we'll start out by telling you about the antiretroviral therapy, the, the HIV drug. That cocktail is usually composed of three components, sometimes just two of these components. Without getting into all the technicals, one of those medications prevents the HIV from getting into the cell. There's another medication that prevents the HIV from replicating in the cell. And then a third medication that prevents the HIV from killing the cell and getting outside and infecting other cells. So this, these three steps have been, you know, key to controlling HIV. The pre-exposure prophylaxis only uses one of those drugs but they find that in people who aren't infected yet, that's enough to prevent HIV infection. So that's what pre-exposure prophylaxis is. There are some side effects depending on, on the formulation of that drug. They tend not to be major side effects. There can be some impairment of kidney function. But one of the key things about being on PrEP is that it requires you to be engaged in care with your physician. So you you can't pick this up over the counter. And there's a whole protocol for being on PrEP that requires you to get an HIV test because if you are HIV positive and go on PrEP, you can actually cause that virus to mutate because you're not blocking it at every step in its life cycle. Uh Uh, and it also people get tested for other sexually transmitted infections, other STIs. So, this engagement in care and care in this PrEP um, really leads to better sexual health among people who are on PrEP. There was this idea that, oh, you know, PrEP is available now, people are going to throw the condoms away and have all kinds of wanton, unresponsible sex and, you know, spread STIs all over. There has been some studies have shown a slight increase in STIs in some groups, primarily gay and bisexual men who are using prep, but, but this isn't widespread. The bigger problem with prep is getting people to take it. So there's been a lot of prep uptake in white, more middle class gay and bisexual male communities. There has been much less uptake in communities of color. Uh, this relates, we're hearing a lot of talk now about resistance to the COVID vaccine as it comes out. It's a lot of the same reasons, a lot of the same distrust of the medical establishment and, and taking medications that people don't really understand how they work. There's also a lack of uptake in the transgender community and transgender women of color are really heavily affected by HIV. So... Within the community, within providers, have been working on more innovative ways of of trying to do outreach around prep to these communities to increase the uptake because it really does work and it it really is effective. Uh, an example of that it was a um, organization I think it was in the Bay Area that served primarily transgender women. And they came up with a program where when the women would come in for gender-affirming hormone treatment and and other kinds of therapies, they would couple that with the PrEP. So they weren't just coming for the PrEP. It became part of this package of medical care that they were getting to address their their gender transitions and and gender-affirming treatments, which made the whole Package more appealing, so we need to do a lot more work around that. And then, of course, um, you know, another barrier is is people being embarrassed to talk about their sex lives and having their sexual health addressed with a physician. And so, it's it's it requires some outreach and education to get people to be comfortable to start asking these questions or talking about these issues with a doctor.
0: And how does prep uh, how does one take prep? So is it like a pill, and then you take it for several days, or what's the protocol? So for so currently
1: it? now it's it's a pill, and you need to take it every day. That's the the usual protocol. There's been some variations there. So they've done studies to see how adherent you need to be to prep or how how consistent you need to be about taking it every day. And there's some research that shows, If you take it about five to seven days, um, or, you know, within a week period, you'll have a pretty good level of the, the medication in your, in your bloodstream. There's also been studies looking at what they call episodic prep so that people don't take the medication on a regular basis, but when they expect they're going to have a sexual encounter, they take prep three or four days before that. Those data are are a little more mixed, Uh, but there, there are some options out there, and it's really best to discuss this with the physician and, and really know what all the costs and benefits to different types of PrEP administration would be. The, the other thing that's coming out is they're looking at injectable PrEP. So rather than having to take this every day, you would take an injection every week or every month Um, Similar to some of the things they're looking at with the antiretroviral therapies to improve adherence. So there are options out there. There are more medications coming out. But it's really important if if you're going to be sexually active and you are, are going to have casual partners who you can't really rely on to tell you their sexual histories... Uh, you should really be taking charge of your own sexual health. And that might involve PrEP, that might involve condoms, that may involve uh, exploring other ways to express yourself sexually than penetrative sex. There are a lot of things out there. So
0: I'm so glad that the field is evolving because it's reducing distress and increasing, I think, healthy behavior which is great. Um, the other piece about um, older adults working with their medical providers is, is really important. I, I was reading recently about HIV statistics in the US and CDC had us a page just for older adults and HIV or HIV and aging page. And on their page, they talk about older adults actually um, being the group or maybe over 50 or 55 being the group of adults who are more likely to be further along in the HIV illness course than any other age group because they get tested later. And I wonder if you could speak about that because you're talking about something so important, which is getting established in care and being on and talking with your provider about your, your sex life and activity and how to have a uh, healthy sex. And I wonder if you would share a little bit about, um, how to start the conversation with your provider?
1: Well, so I'll start with the ageism piece, because I think that's probably driving a lot of this. You know, as I, I said earlier on, there's still this idea that HIV is a disease of younger people. So, you know, the other thing is that a lot of the HIV and STI prevention messaging is also targeted at younger people. And you may not be aware of if you're an older adult and you had a, a really rudimentary sex education class back in the sixties, um, which I suffered through. Um, but you may not be really thinking about sexual health and sexual risk. Uh, it was a couple of years ago. Now I did a talk for some older adults here in New York, uh, here on the Upper West Side. So, you know, this was a fairly middle-class, well-educated, racially and ethnically diverse group. And a lot of them were sexually active and a lot of them didn't really consider they were putting themselves at risk for STIs. And we had some very frank conversations that night. Um, I could say I literally scared the pants back on a couple of them, uh, but but they just that was just not something they were thinking about at all, and and that kind of translates into a, a clinical setting. So, you know, the symptoms of HIV can be like a lot of other illnesses, like the flu. You know, you may have a slight fever, you may feel nauseous. Um, you really can't diagnose without doing the test. And so providers and older adults themselves may not really think about situations where they may have put themselves at risk for HIV and may not think that this could be a possibility. Uh, I've heard a number of stories about fairly older adults, like people in their 70s and 80s, going in, they have this undiagnosed complaint. And then, you know, at the end, they say, oh, let's give them an HIV test. And it turns out they're HIV positive. So, so that's not something people are really thinking about. And in that context, they're not getting tested regularly for HIV. Now, now even Medicare now will pay for an HIV test. Um, So, but they're not being given routinely. So here in New York, we have a law that you're supposed to be offered an HIV test at every medical encounter, emergency room, all of that. Um, I can tell you at my last uh, wellness visit this fall, I was not offered an HIV test. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even though my provider knows that, you know, I'm in a relationship with another man and, Mm -hmm. you know, in a high risk group. Um, so this isn't being done regularly, and a lot of it is because providers are afraid of offending people mm-hmm. by offering them an HIV test because, because of the stigma. Uh, the idea that, you know, if you have HIV, you either have to be, you know, gay, having sex with another man, or an injection drug user, or promiscuous, or, you know, whatever it is. So, so people aren't being offered testing, and they're, they're not going out and looking for testing. And so what you have, the situation you just described, that older adults, when they are diagnosed with HIV, tend to have been living with the disease for a longer period of time. And that can lead to a situation of what's called a dual diagnosis of HIV and AIDS. So that's someone who is diagnosed with HIV, and then they receive an AIDS diagnosis within 12 months of that initial HIV diagnosis. And the AIDS diagnosis is based on a number of criteria. It can be that your CD4 count, which is uh, an immune T cell, falls below 200. It can be that you develop some kind of opportunistic infection associated with HIV, like Kaposi sarcoma. So, uh, approximately a third of people over the age of 50 who are diagnosed with HIV receive a dual diagnosis. And that compares to about 15 to 20% in younger age groups. Wow. So, so, you know, having a diagnosis of AIDS is not a good thing, but there are bigger health implications to this because, even though we have a good treatment for HIV, it does not. You still have the virus in your body, and your immune system is still reacting to it. So, one thing is we see is this chronic inflammation that that also happens with aging. Sometimes it's called inflammaging, right? Uh, but we know that chronic inflammation is related to a number of health conditions like cardiac disease it has been implicated in Alzheimer's disease and other dementias, a whole host of things. So so even with the antiretroviral therapy, you still have this inflammation going on. The other thing is that you kind of wear out your immune system with untreated HIV and that the immune system is really trying to gear up all of its resources to attack the HIV virus and really... Um, what's a good for kind of targets itself towards HIV that leaves it less able to respond to other kinds of threats and other kinds of illnesses we may encounter as we get older so that that for example could be cancer it could be some other kinds of kind of infectious disease but um, the longer HIV goes untreated the more inflammation you have and the more damage to your immune system functioning that you have and what that results in is developing other kinds of comorbid conditions in addition to hiv and even in treated individuals we see that older people with hiv have a greater number of chronic conditions compared to those without uh, Some of our research is finding approximately three conditions on average in addition to the HIV disease. Mm -hmm. And this is happening at a younger age for people with HIV. They're experiencing these things in their late 40s, 50s, and 60s when most people without HIV don't have these multiple comorbid conditions or multimorbidity until they're in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. So there's been some talk about accelerated aging. Do people with HIV get these diseases at an earlier age than people without HIV? The evidence is pretty mixed at this point. It it looks like that may be happening, the accelerated aging may be happening at the cellular level or in terms of certain organ systems, but really good controlled studies aren't finding that people are necessarily getting these diseases at an earlier age, but they are getting more of them. Mm -hmm. And that has a lot of implications for medical care.
0: Yes. And quality of life and And
1: quality of life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And financial expense and home health assistance needed Mm -hmm. all sorts of things. You know we're talking a lot about physical health. and of course, we know that there is um, with with groups that experience high rates of stigma and discrimination, there um, are also there's also more vulnerability then to mental health conditions um because we internalize the stress, uh, you know it leads to minority stress, which is internalized um, internalizing the isms, right? And so can you talk a little bit about the overlap between mental health concerns and HIV?
1: Sure. Well, you know, if you just look at at gerontological research in general, one of the best predictors of depression and other mental health issues are physical health problems. So, you know, we're already talking about a population that is characterized by a disease condition, uh, which many have been dealing with for decades. In addition to that, you have all these other factors that can put you at risk for depression, other behavioral health issues. So uh, stigma is is a really big one, right? Um, some of the work we've done with older adults with HIV here in New York has shown that stigma was a really strong correlate of depressive symptoms in these older adults.
0: Will you define stigma for us?
1: Sure. So stigma is basically the being labeled as being in a discredited group. It's, um, I think it was Irving Goffman who described it as a spoiled reputation so that, so it's something you carry out socially. Uh, you know, if you think of the 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 novel, the Scarlet Letter, where Hester had to wear the big A on her chest, that was a stigma. That was a very obvious stigma. Um, but for people with HIV, a lot of the stigma arises not only because they have a infectious disease, but because of certain behaviors that are associated with that, like same sex behavior or injection drug use. So, so in addition to dealing with HIV, they have to deal with these discredited identities. And a lot of times that uh, stigma is externalized into discrimination and, and mistreatment. This feeds into another big component of depression, which is social supports and loneliness. So when people are stigmatized, it affects their social networks in two ways. One, they can be ostracized by family, friends, members of their community for having HIV or having this disease. So they may be cut off. If you compound that with other intersectional stigmas like same-sex behavior or diverse gender identities or racial and ethnic minority status or ageism, this all kinds of kind of compounds. One way people react to stigma is something that my, my friend and colleague Charlie Emlett described as a self-protective withdrawal, in that you know that stigma's out in the world, you know that you're going to receive this discriminating treatment, so you just tend to isolate to avoid all of that. And indeed, you know, our, our work has found that about a third of older people with HIV are very socially isolated mm. and very lonely. And those are two factors right there that not only contribute to poor mental health, but to poor physical health. Right. So one thing we see in this population are rates of, of depression that are about five times what we see in the general population. And when I worked in, in visual impairment before I got into HIV, one of the big findings there was the high rate of depression we saw in this group. Another group that suffers from stigma and, and functional disability because of their disease. And when I looked at the HIV group, the rates of depression were, were about twice as high as people were visually impaired. A, another group that already has really high rates of depression so it's it's been kind of a big question in the field of HIV is where's all this depression coming from? Uh, one thing we know is depression can also lead you to do risky things that can cause you to get HIV, mm-hmm. to have unprotected sex or multiple sexual partners or or being in in situations of sexual risk. Uh, depression could be a immediate and long term reaction to receiving a diagnosis of HIV. Uh, I know that was true for one person I interviewed for a study who actually, uh, he had a master's degree. He worked in HIV prevention counseling. And then because his partner was unfaithful, he ended up getting HIV, which threw him into a huge depression because, you know, here was someone who supposedly should know better. So not only was he depressed about the HIV, but he was also, really um being unkind to himself um about having contracted it in that situation. Uh so we don't know these, you know, people with HIV may have suffering depression long before they were infected. This could be an ongoing issue for them. It could be a reaction to a diagnosis. It could be a reaction to what happens to them post-diagnosis in terms of their health condition, developing comorbidities, experiencing stigma now as an HIV positive person. Um, But one thing we know is it's way too high. And depression and other behavioral health problems like substance use can interfere with being adherent to antiretroviral therapy. And unless we really address these behavioral health problems in a serious way, we're never going to get to these ending the epidemic targets of, um, you know, 90% 90 of people being virally suppressed. It's just not going to happen.
0: Right. Yeah. And is there any component of the, um, unmanaged HIV physiologically creating a depression. So I'm thinking about vascular depression in older adults, that there are some, um, there's some like physiology that changes Mm -hmm. when folks have a vascular disease and that can create a depressive, um, kind of illness.
1: I'm very familiar with that (laughs) from a family member who had a stroke. And then, um, you know, the the depression was probably the hardest sequelae of that for him to deal with other than, you know, the, the physical impairments from the stroke. I don't know if anyone's really looked into that specifically with people with HIV. Mm -hmm. Um, you know i would say in general we don't have a good understanding of the ideology of depression in this group but what we do know is that a lot of them are not having their depression other behavioral health problems managed in a good way you know so if we get to the other side of it um you know alcohol and other substances can impede your antiretroviral adherence but there's also research coming out now showing that they may make those antiretroviral therapies less effective. One study suggested that even one drink of alcohol a day could compromise the antiretroviral therapy. Um, there are just too many barriers to care. You know, A lot of people with HIV um, are unable to work or were in a lower socioeconomic position when they were diagnosed and they're getting their care through Medicaid. And Medicaid is wonderful. It's been expanded in a lot of states, but it does not have a sufficient capacity to treat the mental health and behavioral health problems in its population. We were doing a study of um, testing out a social support intervention for depression. And we had somebody come in he got a very high depressive symptom score he had not he was not connected to behavioral health care and according to the standards of care in new york uh, anyone with hiv who shows evidence of a significant behavioral health problems should have a psychiatric evaluation so we got on the phone we're calling you know do you know a medicaid provider you know psychiatrist all oh, we finally found one it was going to be three months before Mm -hmm. this person could get evaluated. Mm -hmm. And so, as you can imagine, we never found this person after three months. And who knows what happened to them. Um, Another example is we were working with a local um, aid service organization that had a mental health clinic uh, to recruit people. Actually, it was for the same study. And our arrangement with them was that when we screened, clients positive for depression who weren't connected to care we would give a referral to their clinic which was a you know a good situation made sense for everybody we overwhelmed the clinic within two weeks wow of just their own clients who were screening positive for depression who weren't connected to care so there's just not enough capacity in the system for people and The The other problem is that we've moved to a model of mental health care in this country that relies a lot of, on medication. So people go in, they get prescribed an antidepressant or something else, and then they have a maintenance visit every six months or something like that. And there's a lot of research that shows that medications work really well. But they work best in combination with some other kind of therapy, whether that's group therapy or one-on-one psychotherapy or something like that. That just isn't happening. And a lot of older people with HIV, when you know, in the study when we were talking to them, did not want to be put on yet another medication. Right. They're taking at least one medication for HIV, sometimes more than that. And then it's very likely that they're taking medication for some of these other physical health comorbidities. So, you know, we're adding one more pill to that burden of polypharmacy uh, that they're already dealing with. And they're just not interested in taking any more medication. So in addition to creating capacity in the system, I think we also have to recognize that not everybody wants to be treated for mental health issues with a prescription.
0: Did you look at did did your study happen to look at if people were interested in doing psychotherapy?
1: Well, we did we did make sure that people were connected to mental health care and most of them did were either in some kind of group therapy or or individual psychotherapy with a provider. Uh, our intervention was really to address that isolation, social support side of it, where we had a care, this was based on the MacArthur um, Foundation Project Respect model, uh, where people would get a phone call once a week with a care manager just to check in on them. It wasn't telehealth, it wasn't therapy over the phone, it was really more of a hi, how are you, what's going on kind of thing. Um, And it was really, really effective at reducing depression. Uh, The the other innovation of what we did, and I think it's really important to point out, is that there's a lot of substance use in this population, both past and and current. A lot of mental health providers will not start treating a, a mental illness until the substance use issue is resolved. And that becomes a huge barrier to care for people. We didn't put that limitation on people we were re- enrolling in the study. Some of them were active substance users. We had some rules around that in terms of, you know, not not be using while the care manager is talking to you and um, things like that. And a lot of people, once their depression started to resolve, they would tell the care manager, well, I haven't used whatever it was for a couple of weeks now. So... You know, actually dealing with the depression, dealing with the mental health problem, improve the substance use behavior. So I, I think we, we really need to think, think about this more about how we deliver mental health care in this country. Uh, I don't think this is specific to people with HIV, but I think it's illustrative of the problems in the system in general that we probably need to address.
0: Yeah, we can be so absolutist, even in who we include in studies, you Mm -hmm. can't have had a suicide attempt, or, I mean, all sorts of restrictions and and, um, exclusion criteria for who can even participate in research sometimes, oftentimes. Okay, so I'm feeling very hopeful for the medical side of HIV, there's PrEP, there are antiretrovirals And I'm feeling very disappointed in the mental health um, projections and HIV. So help me though, because I don't want to stay in a hopeless place. Mm -hmm. So, so what are we doing in the field or where are we moving or what can we do? You know, professionals and people who have loved ones who are living with HIV, people who are living with HIV, what can we do collectively and then by group? So help, help help generate some hope here because I don't want to stay in a dark place around this. And I don't (laughs) want, I don't want people living with HIV either who have experienced too many hardships, especially if um, they've experienced um, homophobia or transphobia or uh, racism and plus ageism and now stigma with HIV. I don't want to leave people in a hopeless Mm -hmm. place.
1: Well, there is good news. Uh, so and, and a lot of this was prompted by the physical health concerns. In other words, what's the best way to care for somebody who has multiple comorbid conditions? So, a lot of us have been working on how do you you make the bridge between geriatric care and HIV care? And you know, let me just say geriatric care is not just for people in their 80s and 90s. It's really for anyone who has issues like older adults have in terms of multiple comorbid conditions and multiple medications and things like that. So, so that's been very hopeful. It doesn't, we have a shortage of geriatricians in this country. I think I quoted 12,000 at one point on a webinar and somebody uh, corrected me with a lower number than that, but in the entire United States, let's say there's less than 12,000 geriatricians. So it's not feasible to get everybody with HIV in geriatric care. We're talking about, you know, somewhere around half a million people over the age of 50 with HIV. That's not going to happen, but we can use geriatric care models to inform our clinical care of people with HIV. And they're very similar to comprehensive care models and patient centered care models. It's all in kind of the same family. And the good news about that is that these coordinated care teams or individual care teams don't just focus on one disease condition. They're looking at the entire person. And that includes their mental and behavioral health. And so I'm hopeful that as we see more and more of this happening in terms of HIV treatment and care, we're going to see better attention to mental health issues, uh, because that is such an important part of it. The other thing I I want to say, though, is what people with HIV themselves bring to the table, and that is incredible reserves of resilience and survivorship. So, you know, we're talking about long-term survivors with HIV who were diagnosed in the 80s when there was no treatment available, they've been living with this disease for over 30 years and there's something about them, which we're not exactly sure what that something is, but there's something about them that has allowed them to survive this long and to keep fighting. And that's what they're bringing. That's what they're bringing to the the table. And we need to think of ways we can support that resilience People, you know, people with HIV and older people with HIV aren't looking for some kind of a handout or, you know, some kind of like nanny care or something like that. They want to live as independently and autonomously as everybody else. What they need more is a hand up. They need some support. There are are certain things we could do in the society uh, to help support them and care. And, you know, so for example, I've, I've looked at religion and spirituality a lot as, as a resilience factor. And when I first got into this work around vision impairment, I was accused of, you know, having some kind of hidden agenda about, you know, getting people to find religion and getting them into a church or, you know, whatever that was. Um, But that wasn't the case. What, what I, I found, and then, you know, as I've continued to, do this work in in HIV, is it's a really important coping resource for people, spiritual beliefs. And being affiliated with a church or a faith community or synagogue or a a mosque is also an important part of a physical community of social support. So it it helps people in two ways. One, you have that, that supportive network that really does help out in times of need. And can expand your social supports greatly. But also, you have the belief system that helps you to cognitively and emotionally process things that help happen in your life. And my message about this has always been you know, religion, spirituality aren't for everybody, but for people whose it's important, we should find a way to support that. You know, another, to take it out of that space, another. Another important source of resilience for people are their social connections and the supports they get. And so we should be thinking about what kind of interventions programs can we do to help people enhance their social supports. When I do needs assessments of of older people with HIV, the thing that comes up on top, survey after survey, year after year, city after city, it doesn't matter are we need opportunities to socialize and connect with other people. And they don't really see that happening in terms of, you know, the existing service structure at a aid service organization. Um, They may not, they want it outside of a social context and, and they want it in a context with other people like themselves where they don't have to do a lot of explaining and telling their story over and over again, but really, just to have a community place to go and hang out somewhere that's that's what people want, and that's another like simple way we could be supporting resilience in this group so it's you know I think it's important a lot of times we talk about older people with HIV we're talking about all the problems they face and and we do that for a reason because if we don't do that it's going to be really hard to get the resources we need to help help people that are, are dealing with these problems. But we, we need to remember these are resilient people. These are autonomous people. These are smart people. And these are people who want and are able to control their own lives and destinies. And our job is really to support them in doing that.
0: Mark, thank you so much for your time today and all of the information that you shared with us. I, I am delighted that we're ending with a message of hope and resilience and, and survivorship. I, I think that's a very powerful place to end and, and to leave our listeners.
1: Yeah. And thank you for, for having this as a topic of one of your podcasts and, and bringing some more attention to this issue.
0: Happily, if you run across new research or a new big study comes out, please let me know. And I would love to bring you back and, and revisit any new new findings and or new recommendations.
1: Sure, of course.
0: Great, well, thank you so much.
1: You're very welcome.
0: That's all for today. Just a reminder, if you're a licensed mental health provider looking for continuing education, focused on mental health and aging, simply go to mentalhealthandaging.com to learn more about how to earn your CEUs. Calling all mental health providers. Have you been feeling ineffective, stuck, or unsure of how to best help your client with memory loss? Well, it's not your fault. Most therapists haven't had any training in addressing memory loss or cognitive changes in therapy, but I got something for you in my free 10 minute video where I walk you through five steps for helping your clients presenting with memory loss. You'll learn the difference between memory loss and mental health concerns for older adults and how to help. Get this free training and a bonus workbook that you can start using in your clinic today. Simply go to www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity to learn more. That's www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y.